another episode of Wizards After Dark. Uh, just to keep you guys updated, Wizards After Dark is not quite after dark anymore. We're obviously not doing any more post-game shows. I'm Fred Katz, by the way. I cover the Wizards for The Athletic, and I host Wizards After Dark. Uh, so the deal is we're doing these shows like once a week for now. If any big news comes up or anything like that, uh, then obviously I'll do an emergency podcast within an you know, an appropriate amount of time uh, within that news. I'll get my writing done. I'll get some stuff done. I'll record a podcast, find a guest, all that stuff. There's not been any many, any major news. We've been super quiet in the Wizards, uh, you know, president slash GM hunt right now. Uh, I, you know, I had, I had sources reported via sources last week that uh, Tommy Shepard uh, was going in for his interview sometime this week. Uh, so that's really all that we've got. They haven't lined up any other interviews, to my knowledge at least, uh, and uh, last week, by the way, go back and listen to last week's episode, I had Royce Young of ESPN on, who's a really good buddy of mine from when we covered the Thunder together, and we just went through our entire ballots. Both of us were awards voters. We went through MVP and Defensive Player of the Year and All-NBA and every, you know, award that you, that we voted for, we went through and, and just revealed our ballots there, and I thought that was a fun podcast. Uh, obviously not Wizard-centric, but good basketball stuff, and we did talk about Bradley Beal, since we both had him on our All-NBA ballots, uh, on the line right now, on Skype, on his phone, getting physically abused by his cat, is longtime guest, many-time guest, Ben Standing. Sadly, Fran's not making a joke. I'm literally sitting here with one of my fingers bleeding, <laughs> because one of my because one of my cats thought apparently my, my pinky was a... Uh, I don't know, so, something to eat on, and this has never happened before, literally as we were starting the podcast, so ho- hopefully I will not go on IR, but we'll find out later. This is uh, this is a big deal. You, like, trudging through the injury, doing the podcast. You don't even have to do the podcast. You're just, you're just one, of those, one of those guys who just fights through it. You know, I mean, as long as I as long as I can walk out on the court, I'm gonna I'm gonna play. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna give it all all I have. And uh, you know, if the coaches want to sit me, you know, whatever, I'm not going to listen. I'm going to play. So we're good. You stay up for that Lillard buzzer beater last night? I did. That was um, <clears throat> I was I was unbelievable. I mean, the, everything about it was amazing. I mean, his game was great. Fifty points. The fact that it was the game winning shot, the fact that it was the series winning shot, but the fact that he had the wherewithal to ask like moments after hitting it, wave OKC away. Oh my god, that was so that was so amazing. It was incredible. It was in terms of just like quality of shot. And we don't have that many to pick from. It's only happened 5 times a uh, a buzzer beater to win a series in the playoffs. It's only happened 5 times in NBA history. It was the best buzzer beater to win a series in NBA playoffs history. It was it was better at first. I was like maybe the game one against Houston was better, but this one was better. Uh, it was better than the game one against Houston. It was better than the John Stockton one against Houston. It was better than Jordan against the Cavs. It was better than Ralph Sampson uh, against the Lakers. It was it was so ridiculous. It was I, he pulled up from he didn't pull up from forty. He stepped back from forty. It was so so crazy. It was just so unbelievable yeah. that he did that. And to give him and 50, also, too. To give him 50. Right. Right. 50 on the nose that he and Westbrook have been going at each other this whole time. And look, I mean, the reality is Damian Lillard, 
I mean, obviously NBA people know he's good. He was first team all NBA last year, so let me not act like nobody's paying attention. But generally speaking, when you name the best players in the league, even some of the best point guards in the league, he's not always one that comes top of mind to sort of at least the average fan. And even when I think when some of us who you know do pay attention to the league get caught up in the best players, he doesn't easily – he's not an easy one. Maybe it's the geography of it all. He's low-key relative to these other people. Uh, but that was – a look at me moment, and even within that, he handled it. Like, like, yeah, he was definitely feeling himself, but it still was within far margin of error for, for NBA players when it comes to uh, you know popping the jersey and whatever. He he was it was an unbelievable uh, per- performance, and and uh, you know obviously the fact that it knocked the Thunder out. I know which is the Wizards podcast we're not talking about the Thunder or the or the Blazers, but that has so many ramifications for for, for that organization perhaps and. Yeah, just an amazing uh, moment. I'll tell you what's interesting about them to me, if you want to relate it back to the Wizards. There's a difference, because we always saw those two teams compared as, like, the Blazers were Wizards West in some ways, and the Wizards were Blazers East, right? Because they had this backcourt that was kind of similarly comprised of two scoring, you know, a scoring point guard, a scoring shooting guard. Shooting guard was this kind of semi-off-the-dribble, great shooter guy who didn't get to the rim all that much but lived off his jump shot, and the point guard was the guy who made it all happen. And uh, We saw one go stale pretty clearly, and we saw the other one get swept in the first round last year and fight back from it. And I don't know if there's necessarily any lessons to be learned from that, from the Wizards' side, because I think it all just has to do with it has more to do with personalities and more to do with these with clashing styles than it does to do with just like two guys who were good figured it out and these two didn't so replicate it because that's not the same thing. Damian Lillard, anybody will tell you, is one of the best like locker room guys, one of the best culture setters in the NBA, and he and CJ McCollum clearly have a good relationship, and that team very clearly has a lot of resilience, fighting back from a sweep, fighting back from the nursing injury, finding a way to get Canner to be useful, which by the way, like Russell Westbrook not being able to 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 make Canner irrelevant in a playoff series is more worrisome than Russell Westbrook not making jump shots. Just an FYI, the fact that he can't just overpower and finish over Ennis Canner is very worrisome for Russell Westbrook's next, you know, the rest of his supermax contract. That's I, I don't think that's been discussed enough. Like three years ago, Russ would have dunked on at least attempted to dunk on Canner seventeen times, and he got he didn't even attempt to do it once in that series with Canner dropping all the way back and then just giving Russ shots after shots. Anyway, the that's my tangent about Russ. But well, but to, but to your point about the, the the Blazers, I I mean this year there were times where I went to the opposing locker room if I didn't have a particular angle on the Wizards at night or I wanted to do something, you know, else and one of the games was when they when Portland came in early in the season and it was I exactly went to the point you were making cuz that we were already at that point seeing the Wizards struggles you know, look, look obvious, and, and yeah, obviously they really never fixed them. And I went around asking people in the Blazers, Lillard, uh, Myers Leonard, Terry Stotts, what is it? I mean, you guys got swept out of the playoffs 4-0 last year in the first round, and yet, granted, it was early in the season, but, like, you know, they're still there, the same team. They they, they seemed like they were in a good spot, and they all talked about the culture and the, how the, the Lillard and McCollum were the tone setters, and people, when they come into that locker room, understand the expectations in terms of not not just their role, but but the but but the vibe, the personality p- pulling together, and I really do think on some level, when you look at it compared to the Wizards, that is a big factor. I mean, people 
it's easy to get look at stats. Oh, this guy averaged this many points a game, shot that from the field. This makes him good or bad. But there are so many other factors, especially the higher you go up the depth chart, as to what 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 do you need to do to help a team and and setting the tone, you know, being there for your teammates, whatever the thing may be, is vitally important. And I definitely think that's why Portland is able to sustain, uh, you know, sustain good good times even when they've had some of these struggles, and to some degree, why the Wizards have gone backwards. You know, their injuries, yes, but that isn't the only reason why the Wizards have struggled the last, you know, say, a couple of years. No, of course it's not. They were 2-9. and nine. <laughs> Like, it's not exactly like they were that, – that's the thing. People talk about the injuries, but, like, it's not like they were – and I'm not saying the organization used it as an organizational excuse. They didn't. They fired their president. So, so they didn't do that. Uh, but every once in a while I hear someone say, well, you know, it's the – you know, we had injuries and – Blah blah, and guys got traded. It's like, well, guys got traded because you weren't winning. And when John got hurt, when John really first started to feel the pain, he says he first started to feel that pain in that Cleveland game, which was in December, when there were already many games below 500. So, so let's not pretend like this was just an injuries thing. Something went wrong there. Something went stale. Uh, they're going to have to figure out how they want to handle it in the off season. Someone new is going to have to figure out how they want to handle it in the off season. It's and like I said, I don't think there's necessarily anything to learn from the Portland situation. They're different people. They're different organizations. They're different basketball situations. But from a narrative perspective, it's it's just interesting to juxtapose how how one team got got its asses handed to them by a, by an inferior team in the first round of the playoffs last year when they played New Orleans, and and how the other one has just steadily steadily declined as it's stuck together. And uh, yeah, let's transition to Wizards. Give me, give me a, give me a, a president's life. See, I don't know what to say because colloquially you say the GM search, but technically Ernie was the president. But you also technically don't know if they're going to go to that same setup that they had before. Maybe they just have a GM and an assistant GM in a more conventional setup. So I don't know whether to say ever the president search or the GM search because president search sounds weird. It sounds like you're looking for someone to replace Donald Trump. So what, 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 what do we say here? How do, how do we say this colloquially? GM search, president search, where are we going? GM, I mean, because because I think for the purposes, president sounds like the person who's in charge of not of like everything, including the sales department. The, G, the GM, we're talking about the the the, the roster, the, the product that we're all paying attention to. So the GM search and however the wizards decide to work things out, that's up to them. All right, what? Give me give me a thought. Give me an original Ben standard thought. Um, this is my version of a talk about question on a podcast. Give me a uh, talk, talk about talk about Wizards GM search. Well, I, I don't know if I've been, I don't know if I've evolved in any way over the last couple of weeks. What I said well before the season ended and before Ernie Grunfeld was ever let go, I would say now this is obviously not a conventional GM search, or at least it shouldn't be because of the fact that you have the John Wall situation. The, the injury, we have no idea exactly when he'll be back. And when he does come back, we have no idea exactly what player he'll be. And all we, what we do know is he's taking up, like, what, 35 40% of the salary cap or some huge number. And that and you're not going to even have that to work with, possibly for the entire first year. Th- this person needs to come in and figure out how to work around that. And to me, that's got to be a creative person. I know people get caught up, oh, it needs to be a salary cap person. It needs to be an Italian evaluator. I don't want to get caught up in that. I want. That, I think they need a person 
who is simply creative. If they hire somebody who's more just meat and potatoes type of GM, I'm not saying that couldn't work, but I, I just think that that needs to be you, – you, you, you can't come into this with conventional thinking, I don't believe. So who who, who does that mean? I mean, I, I, I don't know. I would I, my, my take generally is if, you, if people who have never been a general manager and if other people start saying that they know that guy's good or bad, I would largely say that's horse hockey. How can you know for sure until the person is in that job? You're just going off. You know them as a person. They seem like a nice guy. You've talked to them. They seem smart. That's a whole different deal than being in the job. So, and that includes Tommy Shepard, who is a nice guy, who seems smart. If he were to get the job, I don't think he would be necessarily an Ernie Grunfeld clone. But until he does it, you know, how can you know for sure what anybody would do? But um, it's a long way of saying Tommy Shepard, Tim Connolly, which you had put out there right off the bat. You know, I, if you tell me it's one of those two people, I don't think that seems crazy. Are they the right people for the job? Could be. But I just think the larger point for me is they've got to be, starting with ownership, they've got to figure out a way to be creative. If they just view this as simply, all right, well, here's the deal. John will be back at some point, and we've got Yamahimi and this, that, and the other, and, you know, just kind of move forward like, like business as usual, then I think they're probably missing the mark. Horse hockey. You know, this is a, you know, you're a, uh, you're, you're a classy guy. You got a you got a, uh, a a nice audience. I didn't want to give them the uh, you know. We, I didn't want to go full wizards hockey. after dark. I didn't want to go full wizards after dark. If you know what I mean. Yeah, we're wizards mid afternoon right now. Actually, technically, we are recording this after dark. I've done this bit like seventeen times, but it really should be called wizards during dark. After dark is light. <laughs> that is true. Like daytime is after dark. It should really be wizards during dark. But I called it Wizards After Dark. As no, you watched Nano Two an hour, right? <laughs> I did. I did. Yeah, it's that's literally called. Know. It's li- well. It's called Wizards After Dark because it was Thunder After Dark was my previous podcast. But I called it Thunder After Dark legitimately. The reason was because I was watching an old episode of Nano Two and when I was trying to think of a name for my post game podcast, and I was like, "Oh, Peach Pit After Dark. I should do Thunder After Dark." And it is legitimately just based on the Peach Pit After Dark. That is a tremendous reason, and now, now I actually like the podcast. Now, now I'm all in. Now you like it. You, before, before you hated it, and you only did this because I was forcing you and having your cat, training your cat to torture you so that you would come on, and now uh, now you actually genuinely like it because I made a, <laughs> a Valerie Malone reference in the podcast name. Oh, my God. If you're, if you're really getting into Valerie Malone, we may have to completely change this podcast and go into <laughs> other other factors. Hey, I've seen every single episode of 90210, the original. Every episode. I mean, 90210 and Melrose Place, I mean, like, I, I, I will proudly admit that was appointment TV back in the day. Could not get enough of either of those. I mean, it was uh, good stuff. I wouldn't want to go back and watch any of it now. <laughs> but it was at the time fantastic television. Well, teen soaps have progressed a lot. Uh, one thing I will say about the GM thing, and I think a lot of times we think of GM searches from the perspective of the team. Who would be good for the team? Uh, you know, who would be good for rebuilding with this roster? Who's a good prospect? And then you hear names just thrown out, right? Like I reported Tim Connolly. That wasn't thrown out. A lot of people believe that the Wizards are still targeting Tim Connolly as, as a guy to be there. Obviously, Tommy Shepard is a candidate. Uh, and then, you know, people just throw out names, guys who have interviewed elsewhere, uh, you know, Trajan Langdon, the guy who's running the 
the search for that. Mike Ford also did the New Orleans search. So you think like, okay, who interviewed New Orleans? Trajan Langdon was there. Maybe he ends up getting an interview in Washington because he's somebody the search firm clearly values to some degree. Uh, you know, you look at, uh, you know, Ford, Ford is, has done uh, some stuff with some other Spurs-related people. So maybe maybe Brian Wright ends up getting something who's the assistant GM in the Spurs. And these, this is me throwing stuff out there, speculating. I'm not reporting. This is who... He's, he's interested in it. I'm just naming people who he's got connections to, and that's that's kind of what you end up doing. You think of it from the team perspective, right? Thinking from the perspective of a candidate, one thing that I am super interested in to see how this is going to go, and I don't know what the answer to this is going to be because it's particular on who they end up actually hiring, but one thing that I think, if I'm a candidate, I am kind of how Sean Marks did when he went to Brooklyn. I think he got a five-year deal when he first went to Brooklyn. And that was very intentionally five years because when Sean March, who's now running the Nets, got got those five years, it was he wants his and those guys are all extended now, but he wants his contract to outlast them having not having first round picks. Well, if I'm a GM, I want five years because I want my contract to outlast the John Wall contract. But I I want the opportunity to say if I'm unable to find a way to build a roster around that contract, if John Wall is not healthy, if John Wall doesn't come back the same guy and you're paying him the supermax and you're not able to find a way to get out of it, I want some security to be able to build the team the way that I want to build it from scratch. And there's a chance you might not be able to build from true scratch for another four years. So I'm, I'm wondering, I'm really, really interested to see what the length of the GM contract is going to be because you have to commit legitimate money. And look, Ted, Ted my guess, wouldn't have a problem giving out long-term, because when he picks his guys, he usually tends to pick his guys. He's a very loyal employer, and we've obviously seen that from, you know, with a number of people. There are a million examples. Pretty much anyone he's hired, he's a very loyal employer. So I don't necessarily anticipate that Ted would find that to be an unreasonable request, getting a long-term contract. But sometimes you see a GM come in, he gets a three-year contract, then you see what's going to happen. And, and I have a feeling that, GMs who are negotiated are going to want longer ones because of the situation the Wizards roster is in right now. Yeah, I, uh, I I think all that makes sense. You mentioned the Brooklyn thing. You mentioned trades and Langdon. Like when I try to think of beyond, like you know, uh, beyond Connolly and and Tommy Shepard, trades and Langdon is the guy who I keep coming to. Again, not because I'm uh, can tell you definitively that trades and Langdon has the skills required to do this. Because how on earth would I or almost anybody know? But he was there the day that Sean Marks showed up with in, in Brooklyn. They both came from the Spurs. They, they, that was I, I have said that I think the Wizard situation is how do I say this? It, you know, from a we've talked about this before several times in the media room. From a hope perspective, it, it is one of the bleaker ones in recent memory because of the John Wall one. Not saying he can't get out of it, and not talking about what happens if they get Zion Williamson or John Morant, but just in general, not a lot of players, not a lot of cap space, what do you do? But that fact that Brooklyn had this, uh, uh, not the exact same situation, but a similar one because of all those draft picks, and within a you know, relatively short amount of time, they turned that into a playoff team, and they did it in a way that, like I was talking about the Wizards last season, when we got to the trading deadline, you know, instead of thinking about competing for the playoffs, you know, why don't you look to see can you take on somebody else's bad contract, get a first round out of it, you know, to to give up whatever it was, Trevor Reza or somebody like that. Uh, you know, I, I think that like that was how I was thinking. That's how Brooklyn kind of worked their magic. 
to turn this thing around. So yeah, I, I think, I, and, and that's to your point. It's not. It can't just be viewed as we're going to get this done in like ten minutes. It's going to have to be a more protracted situation, uh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm um, I'm really curious to see how that part of it is gonna is gonna play out because I find these sorts of negotiations super interesting, and I don't necessarily get a chance since the Wizards are close. Uh, they haven't really been flying people in for interviews or anything like that, so I can't imagine that they're close on anything right now. Uh, you know, Ted Leonsis has said that he didn't anticipate it being this quick process where they were going to get it over with immediately, right? So he's held true to his word on that. It seemed to be like he was he was being truthful on that sense because they have taken time where they've been evaluating the kind of inner workings of the organization, and I do anticipate them making changes beyond just somebody at the top even if that doesn't necessarily mean... I'm not saying they're going to clean out people. I think they're going to readjust what they're doing. I think there might be adjustments in philosophies. I think there might be adjustments in the allocation of resources, whether that means expanding a particular department or making a particular department smaller with the way that they kind of distribute their resources across the organization. That can mean people, resources of people, resources of funds. Uh, time time is always a resource in that sense, so I, I could see that happening as well. Uh, I think they're going to be changes, and then they're obviously going to be the philosophical changes that come with just like you have a new person running the team. That new person is going to be different than your old person. Those philosophies are going to change too, and and, and that that, uh, that person will probably want to bring in some of their own people as well. So you know, we'll see on all those fronts. But I don't know. There's, there's Honestly, there's just not – they're not moving all that quickly. I don't get the sense, which is fine. Make the best hire. You know, make the best hire. It's not like there are 47 other job openings and you're getting, someone's going to scoop up the guy that you want. Uh, you know, be diligent and be intelligent and hire the right guy. I mean, that's that's the smartest way to go about this kind of stuff. Right. And, and let's put it like this. At, at a baseline level, I suspect Ted Leonsis would be comfortable, I think, if Tommy Shepard ends up with the job. So Tommy Shepard, hypothetically, he, he didn't, I mean, not hypothetically, he did interview for the New Orleans job. So hypothetically, another team could say they want to get him. But that uh, likely, it seems unlikely. So it's sort of in a worst case scenario, if, all, if these other opportunities that exist out there, your Minnesotas and um, some of the other spots, hire somebody. Maybe, you know, maybe the, I mean, look, David Griffin was already picked off. Uh, so, you know, maybe you miss somebody, but they already have somebody. And then plus, like, the, you know, there's several other candidates who were sort of the assistant GMs to different places. That that, that could be interesting. So I, I think they're going to be fine getting somebody that, 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 you know, meets whatever criteria they have. And then, of course, the other factor is, <laughs> you know, if Tim Connolly is the apple of their eye, then we're still going. So presumably, if Tim Connolly is going to get in the mix, that isn't happening until they're over. They're now leading Spurs 3-2 to two in that playoff series as, at, at this point that we're talking so if they advance to another round, then again, if you're going to want to talk to Tim Connolly, presumably you got to wait. So that could be another reason why there's not much happening uh, at this point. And, and you know, you're not, unless I'm missing something, you're not hearing about other places in, in looking at, at that guy. It seems a little specific to here. So for, because of his, I guess, ties or to the area or what have you. So um, again, that's assuming um, you know it, it, it all works out. So yeah, I don't think they're rushing. I think that's fine. I don't have an issue with it. I think they per- – I mean, I would like to see it get going by the time the draft workouts start rolling around. So we're talking sort of mid to late May. But, you know, you still got some time for all that. 
All right. Uh, anything else you want to discuss? Oh boy, what else is there to discuss? The NBA playoffs have not been fascinating. Uh, oh, you want to discuss excited. the Simmons pod? The Simmons versus Lowe pod? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's uh, let let's let's do that. That was a you you want to set it up uh, as what they what they were talking you, about. You you set it up. You listened to it more recently than I did. So uh, first of all, I would just say that other than Wizards After Dark, my go to podcast these days is the uh, Bill Simmons podcast. I mean, I actually really do think Bill Simmons does a pretty good job on the podcast, but his, his, his doing these weekly ones with Ryan Rossillo, I have been, I, I, I've enjoyed them immensely uh, throughout the, the last several weeks. Yeah, Rossillo's great. He's awesome. Yeah, yeah, they, they, they have good chemistry together, and, and from an NBA perspective, you know, they're both, you know, say whatever you want about, about, about Simmons, but, like, they follow the league, and, and on some level, that's all you can ask. They have, you know, I think they balance each other out. But anyway, one topic that came up with, came up with this Russell Westbrook saying next question uh, every time Barry Trammell, one of the Oklahoma City Thunder uh, beat writers or columnists, I think in his case, would, would ask a question. Westbrook, they have a bad relationship. Westbrook would just say next question, and this is becoming a theme. And then Paul George at one of the other press conferences does the same thing, and now it starts becoming a bigger topic league-wide you know, in the media. What's going on here? Is this going to be a trend? Yada, yada, yada. And Simmons started to talk about this, and he wasn't. He admitted he wasn't quite sure which way he came down on the player side or the media side. But he started to to express opinions about how the locker room works from a from a media perspective, post game in particular, and different types of interviews and press conferences, and how everything is nonsense and doesn't work. And some of what he said was okay. I don't disagree with, but some of what he said just completely did not ring true to me as somebody who's in the locker room a lot. Um, and, and I guess this is where, you know, for you, 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 you jump in. But, like, he um, he basically thinks that the whole thing almost on some level needs to be blown up without fully understanding what it is, what's the actual dynamic that we and the players deal with. He does not seem to have a full grasp of all the parameters there. Yeah, so I will say, and the reason I wanted to talk about this, because I think sometimes – So it's really hard for us to discuss this stuff because as media members and as reporters, we're not supposed to make ourselves the story. That's like one of the many cardinal sins about reporting. You don't don't inject yourself, you don't inject yourself or your opinions into a story, right? I mean, if you're a columnist, maybe you inject your opinions, but your opinions are supposed to come up from non-bias analysis if you're doing it right. Right? Like, you don't write something about how a guy's bad because you don't like him on a personal level. Write something about how someone did badly because they did badly. You don't write, this person is bad. You write, this person played badly or something like that. You know, this person is a bad fit or whatever. You don't write, this person is bad, the disrespectful thing to do. And that's injecting your own biases into stories. And so us becoming part of the story and access and that kind of stuff, I think is an uncomfortable topic for a lot of media members, myself included, because it's us making ourselves the story. It kind of became that with the whole next question thing from Russ. A little background on the next question thing, by the way, because I covered Russell for a couple of years. The reason why this is a thing, which I don't think it's been talked about as much, um, just because people aren't there, and again, because the guys still covering him don't want to make themselves the story, Russ, uh, like, the next question thing is that Russ will give, like, there's not a Thunder Beat reporter who hasn't gone through 
the Russ holding a grudge and not answering your question for weeks to months. Uh, I, I went through it for a little short of two months. Uh, Eric Horn from the Oklahoman went through it for a few months at one point. Royce Young from ESPN has gone through it. I think Brett Dawson from the Now Does the Athletic uh, for the Thunder has, has gone through it as well. Uh, so, so that's like we've all kind of experienced this. We all handle it in our own ways. With Barry, it just so happens to be going happening in the playoffs. And I think with Simmons, he was talking about, like, okay, the press conference stuff, being in the locker room. One thing he said that I agree with is that it is super uncomfortable being in the locker room when guys are changing. It's just, yeah. it's a million just percent on that. really weird. I'm always uncomfortable about it. I've talked with players about it. Uh, they, I think they just kind of have gotten over it. I will always think it's weird. I don't necessarily have a better way to do it. Uh, it's weird, but I think I've seen a lot of people say, like, well, why does the media need to be with the players for all of these times if they're not necessarily getting quotes? Why does the media need to be in the locker room pregame when guys are just hanging out if they're not going to interview someone? And what I will say to that, which is a thing that I can't imagine why anybody who is not a regular beat reporter would even think about this, uh, the reason why is because when you are interviewing somebody – the majority of the legwork when you're doing a story, at least for my process, is not necessarily done with, like, recorder in your face doing an interview. It's done in those pregame moments when you're in the locker room and you're just chatting with players like people. Because I think sometimes people forget reporters are people, players are people. You treat each other like people, you're going to find more human moments, and that's going to find better stories and better coverage. And it's also going to lead to, I believe, this is my personal belief, fewer moments where guys get frozen out or people don't understand, because if people think of the media as people, then uh, you're less likely to treat them as subhuman. Uh, And I think in Oklahoma City specifically, they have created a culture where they want to freeze out the media as much as possible. It makes it very difficult to go up to people and just have players and just have human moments, where it's just, hey, I was... How was your weekend? How was your holiday? How was your Easter? How's the family? You know, anything like that, where it's not an interview. You're just having the human moment with the per- the human who you see every day. And and it becomes more difficult to have that. And I think that kind of births these these contentious moments. So I think when when Simmons, who by the way, I think has an argument for like GOAT sports writer ever. So I say this in the most respectful way possible. This is a disagreement of what one point he made, but uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm all in on I'm all in on both of them. Change the industry. Change the industry forever. He basically invented sports blogging and I grew up wanting to be Bill Simmons. If you look at my writing from when I was like 17, it was like a D-minus impression of Bill Simmons. It was just horrific impression of Bill Simmons, but I just wanted to be Bill Simmons growing up. I, I used to go home from school I'd be like, oh, I can't hang out today. Simmons columns out. Got to go home and read the Simmons column. He used to print them out and read them. That's how throwback that was. When he was writing Philly <laughs> yeah, Page, yeah. too. Uh, but, like, I, I think the argument, and I wish Rosillo kind of half made this point to him when he brought it up. The argument for why should, why should they be in the locker room? Why should they be doing this stuff? And some of them, I agree. Like, all-star weekend press conferences and post-game press conferences for the playoffs can be really crappy, but you can also get some great moments. Dame's post-game press conference last night was awesome. It was great. Paul George gave the it's a bad shot one, and Simmons was talking about how many guys are really good quotes. That's not the right question. Uh, It's 
It's really how can we be asking questions that get good answers? And I think the, the reason why you see some reporters who ask guys, you see some reporters ask certain guys questions like that guy, when you really study it, that guy has a, always gets a great answer out of that guy. Well, because they have a relationship. They have a relationship outside of one guy sitting in a chair and one guy sitting at the podium. Like they have an actual human relationship that goes beyond that one question that they ask. So he's comfortable. He knows that he's, he's responding to him as if he's a person who's comfortable with him. And I think the, the more you take away the, uh, the opportunities for people to interact as people and not interact as reporter and, you know, subject of something you're writing about or broadcasting about or whatever, then, then, then you make those answers even worse. You make those moments, those press conference moments, even more treacherous. And you uh, greaten the opportunity for there to be even more contentiousness, you know? Absolutely. I mean, I think you hit a lot of the a lot of the key points, right? It is building, and it takes time. I mean, the you know when, when players get traded in and out, all like for example with the Wizards next year, yeah, it's conceivable they bring back half or more of the team we just uh, saw. But it's also possible that other than Bradley Beal, Troy Brown, Jan Mahimi, that like it's mostly new guys who you and I presumably won't won't know automatically. And well, okay, I, I'm I'm Ben Standing. I'm the good-looking guy that writes for NBC Sports Washington. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> um, you know, uh, you know, whatever. You, you, what's the thing? How do you get, connect with them? And you know, all, whatever it may be. And obviously, a lot, and the other thing is, these guys have their own history. They've been burned, perhaps somewhere else, or they don't care. I mean, look in the case of Jeff Green, who I don't really have a prior relationship with, other than we, I covered Georgetown and, and he played there. I mean, I didn't cover him. But Georgetown schooled their guys to basically not want to talk to the media. So, like, there's a lot of factors that go into this. But but here are a couple other things I think that are important that I think that Simmons sort of glossed over. One, he, he talks about that, you know, what, what, what do you get out of these things? Well, actually, most of the stuff that becomes interesting you get from these things. I mean, beyond the Woj bomb, where Woj is, you know, huddled up in his uh, compound somewhere and, and people are telling him stuff, m- many of the things that happen are because you asked a question either – in the group or on the side to player X, Y, or Z, and they said whatever they said. That's where these things come from. Also, the people you're asking the questions of, like he, like in, in the way Simmons was discussing it, he made it sound like this was like a bad movie script. And so the other side has to be a willing participant. That's the thing, right? I mean, look, I mean, we, we deal with coaches and players who, even if they want to be helpful, don't necessarily have the – their, their job is to play basketball. Their job is not to speak to the media. I mean that in the sense they weren't trained for that, per se. They may not be able to give good answers, or they may choose to not give good answers, which may be tactically smart for them. Good answer in the sense of being interesting. Scott Brooks very rarely gives us an answer that is bulletin board material or headline-generating material. That's probably wise for his perspective. It's frustrating for us at times, but like it's not like... I, you know, but if you ask other people questions, there's other coaches in the league who say all kinds of interesting things. John Wall certainly speaks his mind. Bradley Beal is pretty good. Other players are not, and that's part of the game. Uh, then, of course, there's also just general access. Like, so he's uh, his idea of why are we in the locker room? Well, you know why part of it is we don't actually have as much time with these guys as they may think. Now, you you with the Thunder was the extreme where you basically, from what I gather, almost had no time with these guys other than some, some post-game stuff. But, like, the general sense, so on a day of a game, you have a shoot-around. Okay, so, right, so players are available. Eh, 
Not necessarily. You can ask for players. They don't necessarily are made. They're not necessarily made available by PR, especially some of the the star players or the veteran players. It's it's easier to pick off Thomas Bryant because he kind of has to do what PR says because he doesn't know any better yet. But it's harder to get some of the stars and veteran players, especially regularly. So there's that. When pre and po- pre game, in theory, especially if the players were not, if, if there was no shoot around, they're supposed to be made available pre game. Eh, rarely happens, right? And post game, yes, they will come out and talk, but sometimes they don't. And also when you're in there, now all of a sudden, instead of just being a couple of us or one of us, it's like 30 people. And it's a different dynamic when you're talking to these 30 people versus talking to one person or three people or four people that you see with regularity. So you really don't have as much access to them. I mean, as, as, as his sense may, may think so, these are in some cases the only time you can ask a question of, of these guys. So there are things I think that could be changed, but the idea of the basics of what he was talking about with how the locker room works is not ideal, but I, that is oftentimes some, in some days – some weeks, the only access you really have. Yeah, and and I will say, like, I think there's a sense that because there are some stars like Russell, uh, like sometimes KD will say some stuff. I think there's a sense that there's this really contentious relationship in general with media members and players, and I don't think that's true at all. I have a very good, at the very least, professional relationship with almost every single player that I have covered. Uh, Maybe every once in a while, somebody doesn't necessarily appreciate something that you write. They approach you about it. You get it over with, like I said, like just two regular people, and then it's over. And that's it. And on the whole, I don't get that impression. I mean, at all. Uh, Especially not in the Wizards locker room. I don't think there's any sort of contentiousness with uh, with the media. And I think there are certain individuals who probably don't like the media as much. There are certain individuals who I've covered who love the media. And Escanter loves the media. Austin Rivers has no problem doing 18 media availabilities a day. Uh, Jared Dudley would go for 19 in that case. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, there are some guys who love it. Uh, you don't have to love it. I get I get it. It sucks. I mean, there's. I think there are things that people do behind behind the scenes that is just like there's no way you could know. Every once in a while, I'll, I'll ask a question which sucks. I don't enjoy asking these ridiculously difficult questions in difficult times right after a loss. Bradley Beal misses a buzzer beater, and you got to go to him right after and ask him. So how much did that suck? That's not fun. But but you know, after it. I'll go up to Brad after and be like, thanks for being a pro and answering that. I appreciate that. And I think you have those moments. That's from the access, right? Like, that's from the moments where it's like you know each other, so he knows that you're not trying to make him look bad. You're just doing your job. And uh, I think that comes from from the access of it all. Um, and it comes from just, like, the the ability to be around people and get to know people. When, when you see people as people, you treat them like people. And I think that's true for media, and it's true for and it's true for players. It's a two-way street. Like, I think there's a reason why you see some guys who don't go into locker rooms, and I'm not talking about Simmons, uh, you know, with radio people on a national level or whatever, uh, you know, a, a Skip Bayless type or whatever who is, who is not in the locker room, who is just bashing these people with no consequence, right? And it's because they're not there. They, they, they don't treat them like people. 
They clearly don't think of them as people. If they do think of them as people, then they're just bullies. Like, you don't see necessarily people who are there every day act like that, because I think part of it is that you have to be accountable, because if you do say some stupid crap, you're going to get called out on it by the person's face, and nobody wants to deal with that. I think it's also like, when you see someone as a person, for the 500th time, you, tr- you, you treat them like a person. That's true for us, too. You cover them like a person. So I, I do think that stuff enhances the coverage. I don't know if the listeners find this interesting, but I thought it was a good it's a, <laughs> it's a good, it's a good segue, considering all the crap that's gone on with Russell and I just... This week, well, also, like, like we're, we're, all, we're all consumers of I mean, if you're listening to a Wizards podcast, you consume the Wizards and the NBA and various forms of media. And, like, look, like Bill Simmons, they, they brought in, they lumped in the sideline reporter stuff for those questions you ask the coaches in game. And, look, often those things are a, a large waste of time. I mean, like, I think Chris Miller is, is one of the best guys who does these things, and, and he does a fine job. But, like, this is, it's just a hard situation to ask these people to get anything out of it in that type of setting. I get that. But, like, that's not the same thing as what we're talking about. And if you want the access, like, you know, people always say they want the tough a- a- somebody to ask tough questions. Well, the only way to do that without being a jerk is to, like you just said, you got to get to know these people. Also, I mean, just to, to, to put a, help put a bow on this, I guess, the idea of the media, like, typically there's, like, four or five people that on the written side cover the Wizards with regularity. But on game days, the, the number swell to dozens of people there. Most of the time, the, the three or four or five people typically ask the same questions, but other people can jump in there too, and their questions could be of a variety of ways, and both in terms of the topics, the professionalism, the whatever it may be. That also goes to th- potentially throw off the dynamic depending on the individual or the situation or, or what have you. So there's so many factors. Also, let's not forget the camera. You and I are not working with a camera per se, but the other people, but, but there are you know, the TV stations come in. You get a player one-on-one or even just with a group with no camera, massively different than when the camera shows up. It is a big difference in, for most guys when it comes to how they construct, how they think, how their behavior is. That's also part of the equation. And when there's a camera there, as is with almost every press conference, then, yes, people tend to dumb down their circumstances. Somehow the idea of the camera makes them think this is actually happening <laughs> more so than when you're just talking to people with whoever quarters, which is to your point, it's more of a relationship conversation than it is like, oh, this is actually on TV. I got to be on my, you know, check myself here and not go, uh, not say anything too interesting. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we got anything else? I think we're good on this. I think that's all. I think we're yeah. good. Did, did you uh, did you have an hour long podcast about Dwight Howard uh, opting in? <laughs> oh yeah, Dwight Howard opted in. Let's uh, let's have all the time that let's let's spend as much time on Dwight Howard talking in to to match the level of surpriseness that we had from Dwight Howard opting in. All right, we're done talking about Dwight Howard opting in. <laughs> yeah, fair fair enough. I thought you were going to say let's talk about Dwight Howard as much as he played this year. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, I think the entire world knew that Dwight Howard was going to opt in. He didn't exactly cut it that close with the deadline, which was at the end of June. So, uh, yeah, I think no kidding Dwight Howard's opting in. Played nine games this year. Now we'll see what they do with their centers. You know, Bobby Portis had the – I should I have this up somewhere. I'm going to have this in my story. I'll give a little – a little preview for this. So Bobby Portis had uh, gave up the. This will be in my story tomorrow. I don't know why I'm stumbling over my words so much. Opponents shot seventy two percent, seventy one point eight percent on shots that Bobby Portis contested at the rim this year. 
that was the worst, uh, not just the worst number in the league this year. It was the worst number for any big man since Second Spectrum started tracking those numbers in the 2013-14 season. Uh, the worst ever is Andrew Wiggins in 2017, 73%. James Harden, 2017, 72%. Carmelo Anthony in 2018, 72%. And Paul George in 2018, 71.9%. And those were the worst. And then you got Bobby Portis, 71.8. He's the only big man in there. And uh, they played Bobby Portis majority at center this year. And if your center has the worst rim protection figure of any big man, in the history of tracking this, which is, what, five years, then six years, then you got to reevaluate if that guy is a center or if you have to play him at power forward. Anyway. Okay. I, by, by the way, I will say this, and you can uh, edit this out if you need to. Like, If you want to like end this and do a, keep talking for a, a one for later and talk about the center position, I'm cool with that. But in any event, yeah, the Wizards have some decisions to make in the middle for sure. Yeah, let's let's do a center, a center podcast at some point. We got to fill time. We got like two months until free agency and the draft and all that. So we got even three weeks until the lottery. So we'll do another one of these. Uh, ben, tell people where they can find uh, your great work. NBC Sports Washington at Ben Standing on Twitter. If you are a Redskins or NFL draft fan, I've been doing a lot of that stuff. I don't know if you heard Fred. The well, actually, you may not have heard. Because you are not Mr. NFL. The NFL draft is is uh, is tomorrow, Thursday. So uh, that's kind of a big deal for people. So if you're interested in that stuff, I'm, I'm doing that too. The only reason I know the NFL draft is tomorrow is because we're running uh, my player evaluations. By the way, up on The Athletic, I'm doing player evaluations all weekend into next week. I had a big piece going over the guards uh, earlier this week. We got the bigs going up tomorrow. And we got uh, the wings going up. I think it's scheduled right now for Monday. But the only reason I know that the NFL draft tomorrow is because we were going to run the bigs on Friday. Or I was saying to run the bigs on Friday. And they were like, no, nah, it's the day after the NFL draft. We're doing it Thursday. It's like, okay. Didn't even know that, but that makes perfect sense. So I do know it's the draft. Ha. Huh. And I know the Jets have the third pick. Well, you're, you're, on, you're on top of it. Just be aware. Zion Williamson will not be picked. <laughs> although if he – I did have a, a former – If he worried, probably be yeah, he, he said in sincerity, without knowing anything else, if he were in the NFL draft just today, right now, just came in, he would say he'd probably get picked in the first round just based on his athleticism. It's <laughs> crazy. It's absurd. All right, well, thank you for coming on. We always go longer than I say we're going to. Uh, I'll be back sometime next week, unless something crazy with the Wizards happens. Subscribe to Wizards After Dark. Give us five stars. Leave a review. I'm sure we'll come up with a nice topic for next week. Somehow we got 45 minutes out of this crap, so... That's a real endorsement for the podcast. Uh, come back next week and see what other stuff we're making up in the meantime. Uh, I will talk to you guys then.